Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, in our eternal and indivisible capital, Jerusalem, since King David's time. Today I am speaking with David Weinberg. How do I best introduce you, David? Because you are a columnist today, but you do much more than that. So I'm really happy to be with you, Avi. Um, I've been here in Israel now for over 30 years. And I've done uh, a lot of different things. Uh, I've been in and out of government. I was with uh, Sharansky in government for a number of years. Really? Yeah. In the Prime Minister's office in the mid early 2000s. And I've done a lot of um, press and publicity work. I was the spokesman of Fireline University for over a decade and uh, the PR chief of Shiva Medical Center, Tel Shomer Hospital, for over a decade. Um, yeah. And I've been in the think tank world, really, for most of my time here. Um, right, and one of the organizations you work for today is one that's close to my heart. I've met Amir, Amir Avivi a number of times. I've interviewed him, the Right, very, very important organization. And today we're speaking to David about one of your recent endeavors, because David now travels every once in a while to the United Arab Emirates, UAE, and you're very much part of the world of experiencing this modern bridging between part of the Sunni Muslim world and the Jewish state of Israel, thanks to the Abraham Accords brought by, brought by God and President Trump and uh, Netanyahu when he was prime minister. So how has that been? That, that You've been there a number of times, I understand. Right. The um, Abraham Accords are a strategic transformation, um, a revolutionary uh, earth-shattering uh, transformation uh, for the entire region and for Israel um, and for Jews. And um, I've had the privilege of uh, guiding groups um, to the so United Arab Emirates. guiding groups there. Yeah, Dubai and Abu Dhabi primarily um, a number of times, and I'm back again two weeks from now and again in February and again in April, um, and it is, uh, it's uplifting, and I'll tell you why. Please, yeah. So we all know that... Um, the Abraham Accords are based partially in um, strategic realities, meaning that we have a common enemy right. uh, with the Gulf states, that being Iran, uh, which is on a regional hegemonic um, ambitious plan to dominate the entire Islamic and Arab world. So we have a common enemy. It's also true that the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Moroccans and others are seeking to transform their own economies and to move from oil economies to technology-based, and partnering with Israel is important to them in that regard. Right. Uh, that's all true, and, and everybody knows that. Uh, but what people are missing is that there's a much deeper, um, almost identity basis um, for the Abraham Accords from the Gulf era point of view. Um, and that's the following. They are seeking to change the way in which Arabs and Muslims view themselves um, and how Arabs and Muslims are viewed um, That's by, by the broader world. Okay. Um, they reject the discourse of hatred that has so dominated much of the Arab and Islamic world. Right. Hatred of Israel, hatred of Jews, hatred of the West, hatred of America. Um, and honestly believe that tolerance um, and dialogue is the way to develop their own societies, their own economies, um, and their own world. Partnering with Israel 
is an important part of that. Believe it or not, they actually see the state of Israel. They see Israeli society as a role model for themselves. They see Israel as a country that is traditional, um, nationalistic, proud of its religious um, and ethnic heritage, and at the same time, oh, very family-oriented, mm -hmm, yeah. and at the same time, um, open to the world, a leader in science, technology, medicine, arts, culture, um, fully integrated into the Western world of academia and business, and that's what they want for themselves. You could almost say, in a perverse kind of way, um, they see what we've achieved here um, as a role model for themselves. And again, the role model you're referring to is holding on to their traditional, authentic, in this case, religious identity, while at the same time being open and working together with, with the world. Correct. And, and, and that's not an easy balance to maintain, and they look at us as having right. maintained. And, and they are fighting a struggle in their own world, in the Arab and Islamic world, because there are forces of, 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 of continued strength of radicalism, whether it be Shiite radicalism right. or Sunni radicalism, that right. threaten. Um, all the foundations of everything we've right. just discussed. So in many ways, the Arab-Israeli conflict is, is over. We are now partnered with um, Sunni Arab moderates um, in a battle against the extremists um, right. in this part of the region. And for me as a Jew and an Israeli, that's very affirming. It's very exciting. Uh, it's not just new possibilities for Israeli a trade and tourism uh, in the Arab world, right. it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a new integration of Israel um, in this region um, that has, as I said, uh, deep um, foundations of, of identity um, and, and destiny. Wow. So before going into more the, the deep concepts that you're bringing about, take us down to the ground. You were there. You were meeting people, different sites. You're an Israeli Jew, together with other Israeli Jews, I imagine, walking the streets of these different cities, of, of, of these uh, Gulf countries. Any feeling of anti-Semitism whatsoever? Any feeling of antagonism? Any looks? Like, take us through the, the, the actual walking in the streets there and, and, and meeting uh, different people who are just meeting you for the first time and hearing your Jews and your Israelis. First time... My wife and I uh, were in um, Dubai, which was um, Hanukkah two years ago. We're wow. almost at Hanukkah now. Um, we checked into our hotel, and uh, it was suggested to us that we take the elevator up to the top floor because there's a lounge there and be able to meet people. And uh, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I look like an Orthodox Jew. I'm wearing my kippah. My wife is a religious woman. woman. She has her hair covered as Orthodox Jewish women do, uh, we get off the elevator at the top floor, there's these two Emirati men in their full regalia, right. the full dress, the white kandora, um, or dish dash, as some of them call it, um, standing outside the elevator, and they see us, and they literally throw themselves on us. You, we've been waiting for you for so long. You are the children of Isaac, they say to us, and we are the children of Ishmael, and how wonderful is it that we're finally coming together, the grandchildren of Abraham? It was like, wow. it was like typecast out of a Hollywood movie, like they had been placed there to sort of, you know, greet us. 
but we found that almost everywhere uh, we went, um, they're very excited, uh, the Emiratis at least, uh, very excited to, for, for this new partnership. You can walk anywhere um, as an Orthodox Jew, as an Israeli, uh, with no fear whatsoever. I would even dare say that you feel more comfortable walking the streets of Dubai than you might feel the streets of New York, That's or never mind like Paris, today. Paris or London today. Wow. Part of it is also the fact that um, it's a very strictly controlled society. Let's, I was going to ask you, like, right. how is this? How is it insulated from the radicalism that really has a stranglehold on most of uh, the Arab Muslim countries? Right. So, now, so now, now we need to talk about politics and, and, and Middle East strategy. The only way the Emiratis have been able to build uh, their society as they have, and it's true of the Bahrainis as well, is by um, building society which is an absolute dictatorship, a benevolent dictatorship, as long as you don't step out of line. They say there are two things uh, in Dubai, um, two things which there are more of in Dubai than any other place in the world. Having been there, I can believe it. One is building cranes. 25% of all the building cranes in the world, they say, are in Dubai. When you get there, oh. Thousands, thousands of skyscrapers going up all the time, just wow. growing and growing. The other is CCTV surveillance cameras. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. They know everything that goes on in that country, every move, and nobody steps out of line. You can leave a bag with $10,000 worth of diamonds in the back of a cab by mistake. You'll get it back two hours later. Nobody would dare steal. There's no theft. There's no crime. Um, because surveillance is great and punishment is, for crime is severe. Right. Now you have to understand, there's only a, a million uh, Emirati citizens. Their entire country is based on the work of 9 million foreign workers mm -hmm. from India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan and many other countries of the, of the farther east. Um, they work hard, they're paid well, um, they're strictly controlled. Nobody steps out of line. Um, so, and, and it's true on an ideological level as well. How have they been able to uh, check the infiltration of radical Islamic ideologies to their society? Well, no imam at any mosque in the Emirates can deliver a sermon in mosque on Friday without running the text through a government through the Ministry of Religious Affairs in advance. Wow. Um, they don't want the Wahhabi radical Sunni or the Shiite radical Iranian uh, messages and texts infiltrating in their society. They actually teach tolerance in their schools. They teach their women um, to be highly educated um, and advance in government, business, and politics. Um, but that's how they control it, with an it, iron thumb. It's... On, on the one hand, like hearing about that society and the openness of an Arab Muslim society, the welcoming um, experience you're, you're expressing to us and out of experience to, to Jews, to Israelis is unbelievable. On the other hand, it then, it then brings up the whole, the whole conflict, like, wait a second, we come from the Western liberal mindset of democracy. So which values are more important? Is it the value of the democratic structure and allowing everyone to be and, or, and then living together? Or is, wait, 
if this type of country would have that democratic system, then I think it would be pretty safe to say, throw the tolerance and love of Jews and Israelis out the windows, if not within a few years, but uh, within a few decades. Uh, how, how is that a topic of, that comes up at all in terms of discussing either with Emirates or, or, or fellow Arab Muslims there, or within Jews or Israelis of your, of your groups as you're experiencing this? Well, within the groups um, that I've led, of course, it is a topic of discussion. You don't really discuss this with the Emirates, the Bahrainis, oh, because they're 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 trained not to have um, these discussions. I think the question to your answer is obvious. Obviously, we have a deeper um, ideological uh, connection to the democracies, to the free world, to the democracies of the West. Um, but we live in the Middle East, and it's a rough neighborhood. Uh, we've seen what happens to Arab countries where the central government um, deteriorates, whether it was the takeover uh, of Egypt for a short period of time by the Muslim Brotherhood, or the move of you know Al Qaeda and ISIS into uh, stateless areas of Iraq and and, and Syria. Um, in the absence of a strong central government, hopefully a benevolent and right. tolerant um, uh, central government, uh, all hell breaks loose, and democracy seems to be a far away. Listen, Egypt, Egypt is the very, the, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, takeover through a democratic process is the most recent example of what happens in a Arab Muslim country that then plays with So we do not have to hail um, the structure or system of government um, in these Gulf countries in order to part with, partner with them on good things, ranging from health technologies to environmental technologies, to defense and intelligence ties, um, to business, um, and even uh, the arts. Uh, there's, there's so much good that the countries are already doing together right. uh, to more than justify um, our, our new partnerships. Right. Now the point, this, isn't, this is a topic not necessarily for this, for, for, for this sitting, uh, for this talk, but it, it, it ties into the connection of how the Western world, and especially Europe and, and, and America, then look at us, and in terms of us as in the Jewish state of Israel, and trying to solve a conflict with, with an enemy within us, and using the paradigm of the Western democratic model, as if this is an area of the world where that could be imposed to really ensure a peaceful future, as if our Palestinian Arab neighbors will be able to live side by side with us peacefully if they do live in a democratic system where whatever is being forced upon us, it has to be done in a way that is totally accepted by the Western democratic paradigm. So not necessarily a discussion for now, but it does bring up the whole issue of how, I guess the question really is, how does how does the West look upon that? Or how, in terms of uh, you, you come from public policy, you come from government. Like if there is an understanding in the West of oh yes, we must respect the Emirates and having this type of strict control in order to ensure a peace, then why can't that understanding of cultural differences be also applied to our situation in dealing with our enemies? So as I said, the the Gulf countries or the countries we're talking about don't necessarily think in terms of democracy in its Western sense. They do think in terms of tolerance and moderation, and they recognize, unfortunately, the Palestinians are far from being a um, tolerant and moderate national movement. 
They recognize the failures of the Palestinian national movement. They've grown tired um, of the Palestinians. They've lost patience with the Palestinians. They don't like the suffering of the Palestinians. They feel for their Palestinian right, brethren. Their Muslim brother. um, and they would be happy to see some sort of reconciliation, some sort of settlement between us and the Palestinians on really any terms. They're not insistent on the so-called you know, two-state parameters that has been bandied about in Western discourse for the last three decades since the beginning of Oslo. Um, <clears throat> they're not eager to meet or to see Israel meet every Palestinian demand, but they would like to see some sort of settlement. They're not even um, opposed in principle to Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria or to Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. They really believe. You've heard that from their own without from question. Their own without question. Wow. They've actually without said that. question. That in the context of an overall settlement, right. through dialogue, right. not through you know barreling in there and opposing things, but through dialogue, um, through negotiated arrangements, there's no reason why Christians and Muslims and Jews, in addition to Muslims, can't pray on the Temple Mount. They actually believe that to be a principle of religious freedom and tolerance. And wow. in fact, they want the opportunity to pray on the Temple Mount, something which the Palestinians and the, the, the Palestinian and Jordanian-dominated Waqf has been blocking. Those Emiratis and Bahrainis who have come to visit here right. have been Why? stoned or, or otherwise harassed. Why? When they, because this is the Palestinian protest against... Oh, against their relationship with against, Israel, against the and they Abraham take it courts. out when they go. Exactly, and visit I think that explains the why the Emirati uh, Bahraini leaders themselves have not made state formal state visits here. How can they come to Jerusalem without going up to the Temple Mount? And the Palestinians will turn it into world war. That's part of the problem. Wow. Which brings me to something else we should discuss, which is um, the unfortunate lack of enthusiasm that you see in parts of the Western world, particularly on the political left, for the Abraham Accords. Mm -hmm. Now, it should be a no-brainer. The Abraham Accords should be embraced by everybody. The first thing that President Biden in the U.S. should have done on his first week in office is appoint a special envoy to advance the Abraham yep. Accords. It, it, it's in America's interest. It's in Israel's interest. It's in the, in the greater interests of the West. Right. But because the Abraham Accords were a political triumph of President Trump um, and of Prime Minister Netanyahu, it's hard for the political left to swallow that. Do you think that's the only reason? Because I'm just going to push back on that on that point because I do remember Secretary of State under under Obama. John Kerry was pushed at a certain conference and he was asked point blank, and this right. is recorded. Um, don't you, can't you see Israel being able to make peace with Arab uh, countries uh, before a peace deal with uh, the Palestinian Arabs? Let me tell you a few things that I've learned for sure in the last few years. There will be no separate peace between Israel and the Arab world. I want to make that very clear to all of you. I've heard several prominent politicians in Israel sometimes saying well, the Arab world's in a different place now. We just have to reach out to them and we can work some things with the Arab world and we'll deal with the Palestinians. No, 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 and no. 
I can tell you that reaffirmed even in the last week as I have talked to leaders of the Arab community. There will be no advance and separate peace with the Arab world without the Palestinian process and Palestinian peace. Everybody needs to understand that. That is a hard reality. And John Kerry said, never. No, 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 right? no. Impossible, times, right? impossible, meaning that I'm, I'm just trying to push back, meaning it's not just a political battle of trying to build on and giving and uh, accepting the triumph, the diplomatic triumph of Trump, but it's an ideological problem for them because they, they built their whole paradigm and they continue to build their paradigm on the issue of the Middle East is the Arab Palestinians with Israel. And that is the core issue. And the rest of the Middle East can't be solved until that's solved. So even though the Abraham Accords has proved them wrong, they are not willing to admit it and go against, because then, then their whole diplomacy of over 100 years falls apart and they have to rethink, and they're not willing to do that. So you're absolutely right, Avi. But what you're saying is not pushback against what I said, but uh, in, addition in addition to correct. what I said, there's no question that um, on the political left, they're uncomfortable with the Abraham Accords because it has sidelined the Palestinians. Now, it doesn't have to sideline the Palestinians if they don't sideline themselves. There are incredible opportunities for the Palestinians to join all the new regional forums that have been set up um, under the auspices of the Abraham Accords and to benefit from their involvement in water partnerships and electricity and gas partnerships and, and health um, and business partnerships, but they've taken themselves, you know, out of the game. They've, yeah. per, they've sidelined themselves. And as a result, the Abraham Accords indeed sidelines the Palestinians. It's very hard for the political left to swallow. And that includes, unfortunately, parts of the American Jewish uh, political left. Right. Just um, earlier this week, um, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken spoke to the J Street <laughs> Conference yeah. in Jerusalem. J Street is a hard left uh, political lobby. Right. And, and when, just to interject, they call themselves pro-peace, pro-Israel. I call them anti-Israel. But continue. But when Anthony Blinken, um, on behalf of the Biden administration, came around in his speech to talking about the Abraham Accords, and the administration has come around, they now talk about the Abraham Accords with great enthusiasm. He devoted a significant part of his speech to that. He got no applause. No way. He got no applause. When he talked about you know, two-state solution. Then all the and riding herd on Israel's supposed human rights abuses and so on. Then he was got standing ovation. You know, it, it it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. I give this reaction because it's just a shock of sadness. It's a shock of sadness because it, because it just strengthens the understanding within me and I'm sure within you as well that unfortunately so many of our brethren our fellow jews who who are on the ideological left on the one hand they talk about peace and tolerance and yet when it comes to the true the true application of peace and tolerance of the abraham accords with these sunni countries that you are experiencing with your eyes and your feet that they are against and it's only about peace and tolerance with an enemy that teaches their children in kindergarten to kill jews it makes no logical, rational sense at all. And unfortunately, it turns, I mean, again, this is me speaking. I don't know what your position is. It, it, they're basically supporting the enemy instead of supporting their own brethren, the Jewish state of Israel, and true peace and tolerance with those Arab Muslims truly interested in having good relations with them. And it's just a sad, it's like a, 
a rock falling down, like, really? Like, to that level? It's just really saddening. It's going to take time. Um, the Abraham Accords are, as I said earlier, revolutionary. Um, big shock to the entire system. A shock to the ideological system of many people, as you just described it. And it will take time for people to understand um, how they offer a new path forward. Hopefully, a path forward that will bring uh, some more maturity and responsibility to the Palestinians as when, but it's going to be a long, um, slow process. There is one other thing we should talk about, which is the grand cloud that hangs over the entire Abraham Accords process, and that, of course, is Iran. Mm -hmm. um, as long as America leads in the struggle against Iranian regional hegemony and its effort to build a nuclear bomb, um, then there is an umbrella framework for Israel and the Gulf states and the Moroccans right. and others to gather um, under. Um, if, however, the Gulfies sense that Iran is winning, yep. um, they will bandwagon with the winner. Yep. They don't want to be on the losing side. The reason they bandwagon with Israel because they view Israel as a winner. Israel is a strong country, societally, as we discussed earlier, and from an intelligence and... From a geopolitical perspective today, as well and, as we and, 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 and a military perspective. If Israel, because of, you know, U.S. Um, indecision, let's call it that, or other weakness, um, pulls back from the struggle against Iran, um, and Israel is weakened uh, by that, there is the danger that uh, one day the Saudis, Emirates, and others will seek to require quite agreements with the Iranians, and they don't want to be the target. Right. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's Dr. Kedar who said, and I think he said it in one of my talks with him specifically about the Abraham Accords, that every peace deal with an Arab Muslim entity is a peace deal written on sand. For what exactly what you said, like take it and, and enjoy it while it's there. But it, it it could it could disappear. Strategic interests change over time, not from year to year, but over decades and centuries for sure. Um, we have strong strategic reasons for a strong alliance with these countries now. Um, stopping Iran, checking the the growth and expansion of Iranian power is a key to ensuring that the Abraham Accords will uh, survive uh, over the long term. But in the meantime, as you say, there's a lot to enjoy. Look at right. this jacket. Yes, yes, um, please tell this, us about this. This is a sweater, a jacket that I bought last Motsay Shabbat, last Saturday night in Dubai. It's uh, made in Syria. Oh, uh, well, wait a second. Did you, did you guys, a Jewish Israeli bought a Syrian made jacket in Dubai? That's like mind boggling. Yeah, but I'll tell you another story. It's even better. Um, and with this, perhaps we'll conclude. And again, going back to my first of several visits to the Gulf, um, the first time I was there, my wife and I also did, you know, touristy things, not just okay. meet and speak with the Emiratis and meet their th my think tank colleagues and government officials and uh, imams and so on. One of the things we did is we went on an early morning uh, hot air balloon ride uh, in the desert um, outside Dubai. Wow. Driving to the desert on, you know, jeeps in the dark. Um, and uh, as we were waiting for the hot air balloons, this pre-dawn, you know, to fill wow. up with air, we got um, each group, 
you know, different groups are going in different balloons into the gondola of the balloon, we had like a security briefing. And we were a mixed group. We were some Israelis and some Jews and some Emiratis. And in our group was a young uh, Emirati couple. Uh, we started talking to them. Turns out they had recently been married. And he's dressed pretty Western and she's dressed very traditionally. And my wife and I got, my wife and her, this young Emirati woman got into a discussion about how they cover their hair. Wow. And the Emirati woman starts unwrapping her thing and starts showing her, well, I wrap my head this way. <laughs> and my wife starts showing her, well, I wrap it this way. And I have this video of the two of them in the pre-dawn darkness in the desert outside Dubai with the hot air balloon filling in the backs. They're gesticulating as they're explaining to each other, comparing right. one with another, right. how they cover their hair for reasons of religious modesty. To me, that's a great example of the of the of the ground uh, for for common uh, for understandings and for long term peace. Right. And I will build upon that, saying that that also is a fabulous model for the rest of the world. And one, each of our countries with our Jewish identity and our Muslim identity, but then together standing up like, yes, we can be proud of our, our authentic uh, religious identities and still be part of this world to then give the power to other countries and other peoples and other nations exactly. that are very much with the challenge of the secularization and, and the progressivism, which is trying to push God out of our lives. So it's a wonderful Which is model. one more reason why the Abraham Accords have to work. We have to make sure that they work and that they last. Okay. David Weinberg, thank you so much. My honor and pleasure to be here with you, Avi. It's my pleasure, and hopefully, thank you, thank you, and hopefully all of you just got a, a, a window into something that you possibly have not really thought about, heard about, considered, and uh, I hope it was like as mind-blowing for you guys as it was for me. Um, but yes, peace, coexistence is possible. If it's possible between Jews and Muslims in the Middle East to this level, it's possible between anybody. So take that inspiration and let's make the world a better place, but do not ignore reality. It's about understanding reality and then working with it to make it better. Signing off for another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, in our eternal and indivisible capital, Jerusalem, since King David's time. Thanks for watching, everyone. Shalom. Pulse of Israel, frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.